If you will take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews and the seventh chapter. We will return to this passage speaking of change as we continue to think on the changes that Christ has brought in His coming and this beautiful bag of blessings that He has bestowed upon us by the transformation of the priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll begin reading again at verse 11. If you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would grant to us grace and peace and understanding. And we ask, God, that you would allow us to behold your truth. We pray, Father, that you would teach us to see the change that Christ has brought, to understand the majesty and the magnitude of all that is altered because of his coming, and to remind us, God, that expectations were not what they should have been, and let us examine our own. Father, we pray that the motives and the purposes of our lives would be laid bare before you, and that you would correct us and change us, God, that we would walk in a way that is faithful. And we ask it all in Jesus' precious and perfect name. Amen. There is deep inside of our souls a need for purpose. It is the aspiration of our eternal souls to long for meaning. And the world seeks always to degrade and destroy this compass of our lives. When we're adrift, we are easier to control easier to deceive, and ultimately easier to destroy. Meaningless pastimes and activities pass for purpose and are accepted as true motivations for life. But they will always leave us adrift. Simeon and Anna show us the true purpose can sustain and empower a life for a lifetime. And there's much to learn here about what Christ brings us regarding our purpose in this bag of blessings. So I want to think with you about purpose, and I want to think with you about purpose in the context of Simeon and Anna, and of course the change that Christ brought, because before his coming there was purpose that was defined by a false understanding. And even after his coming, there are many who understand things incorrectly. So what are some things that people use to define purpose for their lives? Might be money. It might be family, it might be fame, it might be freedom, either national or individual, it, it might be pleasure, it might be just a general feeling of importance, wow, I matter in the world, look at all the great things I get to do. But ultimately, any of these purposes are false. They're hollow. And they're hollow primarily because they end and begin and have everything they do with you. They're, they're centered around you. They're centered around your life. They're centered around your work. They're centered around your will. And if that's what you're seeking, when you end, 
those purposes also end. There's no value to them. There's nothing that lifts you beyond yourself. And if we're going to talk about purpose, we need to recognize that the truth of the conversation means that our purpose must extend beyond us. It has to go beyond the reach of our years. It has to go beyond the reach of our own grasp. It has to be something that we aspire towards, not something that we bask in. Purpose is a motivation outward. It's a motivation forward. It's a motivation upward. And it's something that it calls us to exceed ourselves. It's something that calls us to move beyond what we are and into what God has created us to be. And so any purpose that is not taken in with an eye to eternity is going to leave you empty and hollow. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and we'll just read a few verses here, starting at verse 8. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, and according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So what he says here is that when you allow somebody to give you a philosophy for life that is rooted in what men think and what men do, it is going to be, by definition, contrary to Christ, and it is going to be, by definition, false and empty. It is based on man's tradition. It's based on man's understanding. It's based on man's envisioning. It's based upon man. Now, what's the problem with basing something on man? <laughs> We're wrong. <laughs> it, it, it's limited. It is based entirely upon a faulty understanding. No matter how much we think we know, we do not know enough to answer eternal questions. No matter how much we think we understand, we do not understand enough to even ask the right questions. It takes God opening our hearts and opening our minds to allow us to see a need for purpose. We feel it. We sense it. We struggle for it. We strive after it. It's one of the things that causes so much chaos in the younger generations when they are finding their way in the world is they don't really know who they are. They don't really know what they're about. They don't really know what they need. They don't really know what they want. They don't know what their purpose is. And so they spend a lot of time wasting a lot of time because they have no guideline for how to live a life. They have no purpose. They have no calling. They have no vision beyond themselves. And so they spend and waste their time simply passing their time. And if that's what you're going to do, then what you're going to gain from your passing of time is just old age. If you live that long. <laughs> and you probably won't if that's how you live your life. Um, it, it's an empty deceit. It's a tradition of men that is based on faulty suppositions. And Paul self tells us here in Colossians, be careful lest anybody take you captive by these empty traditions. Lest anybody take you captive. And so that picture gives us this idea that not having a true purpose 
becomes a chain or a shackle or a prison that, that connects you almost inextricably to a false purpose. It, it, is, it is literally a captivity. And if you don't understand what it is that God is calling you to be, you can know without question that you have been captured by a false purpose. If you don't understand who you are in Christ and what it is that God has given you in Him, then ultimately you will fall victim to the things of the world. You will fall victim to this, this ensnaring ideology that will cause you to abandon things that you hold loosely to be true and go after things that the world defines for you. This is why we have this rampant, chaotic nonsense going on in our public education system whereby children are being systematically deceived and systematically destroyed about their identities. It is based 100% in the reality that these kids come into the, the vacuum of a public education system without any rooting and grounding in who they are. They don't know God. They don't know Christ. Their families have not prepared them. And they are cast into this system which is contrary to Christ in every way. It's important for us to understand what is the scope of the conflict. It's not about gender. It's about spirituality. It's about who God says people are and who people want to be. And if we don't reframe the conversation carefully, we're going to lose the discussion. We're going to lose the argument. Because we allow it to be distracting and deflected into everything that is not instead of addressing what it actually is. We need to be very clear with ourselves, at least, and with others as God gives us opportunity. These philosophies of men will always be destructive. They will always harm you. They will always turn you away from what is true and good and right and noble and cause you to chase after that which is wrong and destructive and deceptive and harmful. There's no two ways about it. The philosophies of men will destroy us. It is because... They themselves are corruptible. Right? If, if you base something on something that is corruptible and corrupted at its root, what are you going to have? Suppose you're building a house and you go down to the local home supply store and you're going to build a foundation out of blocks. And there's a beautiful stack of nice, square, strong, structurally sound blocks to your left. And to your right, there is a stack of blocks that people have knocked over. They're cracked. They're broken. They're not square. They're offering them to you for sale at a deep discount, only 90% of the normal cost. And you go, oh, that sounds good to me. What's your house going to be like? I, I wouldn't set foot in the place if it was off the ground. Because <laughs> it's going to hurt when it comes in around yours. See, if you don't have something solid to build on, then what you build is fundamentally flawed because it goes all the way down to the root. It goes all the way down to the foundation. It goes all the way down to what it's based on. This is true in physical buildings. It is also true in what we build in our lives. Look at 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting at verse 17, Peter has this to say. 
And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He, indeed, was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. So, Peter's talking about the reality of our redemption, primarily. But if you understand what it means to be redeemed, you also understand that your redemption becomes a purpose. It becomes something that constrains where you're headed unto. And it becomes that because you have been redeemed with something more than what you can expect to, to see in the world around you. And Peter puts it like this. You have not been redeemed with gold or silver or corruptible things. You've not been redeemed with the, with the garbage of this world, but instead you have been redeemed with the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed with that which is incorruptible and undefinably beautiful. And you have been redeemed unto what that blood itself is worth. What's he talking about? At least in part, he's talking about living unto the value of what it is that you have been purchased by. He's talking about purpose. He's talking about the reality that if you have been redeemed by Christ, then your life must necessarily reflect what that is worth. You have to live unto what you're valued at. And fundamentally, the basic law of economics is a thing is worth how much? What somebody's willing to pay. Right? That's why ground right now is going for $10,000 an acre in some places. Doesn't mean it's fundamentally worth that. It just means that some fool's willing to pay it. And so they're going to get it. I've got a truck out there that I would happily sell to anybody for a million five. <laughs> Please, Lord, let some fool come buy my pickup. <laughs> right? A thing is worth what somebody's going to pay. What does that tell us about what God has called us to and created us for in what he has paid for us in the blood of Christ. Beloved, it is so much more than empty, vapid pursuits. It is so much more than nonsense. It is so much more than things that vanish with the using. It's a purpose that goes beyond this life. And the very first thing we have to understand about adopting a purpose that is more is that the purposes that we inherently grab hold of are nothing. And we have to know this. We have to know this in our bones. We have to know it by tasting it. We have to know it by understanding it. Because ultimately, even man-driven religious purposes, which always look like a legal list, have no power to improve or draw us towards God. But they're easy to fall victim to. There's a lot of people that live their life by the legal list. There's a lot of people that live their lives saying, if I do this and do this and do this, then God has to save me because I have fulfilled everything I'm supposed to do. Look at Colossians chapter 2. 
Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 20. Therefore, if you die with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And I would add to that, they are of no value to give us any lasting peace or any lasting comfort. They are of no value to define a purpose. Because always the laws that we construct are designed to do what we think we need to do apart from God. Which is where the fundamental flaw with man's devised purposes lies. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Right? That's what you're made for. And whether you lay hold of that purpose or not, that is your purpose. Whether, whether, you are, whether you are conscious of that purpose or whether you have abandoned that purpose to pursue something else, you have been made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Imprinted into the DNA of mankind at a, at a soul level is this hunger for God, this desire, this reality of the fact that we need Him. Because He has made us for Himself. That's why you exist. That's why you're here. That's why you're on this rock sucking wind. Because you are made for God. And any purpose that excludes that will fail you. So let's talk about true purpose. And I want to talk to you about true purpose which seeks after God in the context of these two people given to us around the birth of Christ. Simeon and Anna. They, they kind of bridge the, 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 the gap for us because they are Old Testament people having been brought up in the, in the land prior to Christ. But they were looking unto Christ. They were looking forward to the deliverance that was promised. And they had, a, they had at least an understanding, they had at least a vision of what it was that God was doing that would free them from the bondage of the Old Testament priesthood. Now, I don't think they grasped it fully. I don't want to attribute to them more than they were supposed to have. But we do see some really remarkable things here. And they revolve, in my mind, around this understanding of purpose. They revolve, in my mind, around this reality that no matter what happens, God will accomplish what He set out to accomplish. Now, I, I, I love Simeon. I think that he is he's one of my favorite people in the Scripture. And it's really easy to kind of gloss over him. He's mentioned here in the Gospel of Luke and nowhere else. We don't find him anywhere else in Scripture. We don't find anything else about him. What we know about Simeon, we read earlier. That's it. That's all we know about it. He's not mentioned in any other Gospel. He's not referenced in any other writing. But I love Simeon. Because he, he beheld Christ. He recognized Christ. 
And his immediate response to God was, God, I can die happy now. I, I just, I'm, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to die. I have lived a long life. And I have lived a long life waiting to see this child because you promised that I would see the redemption of Israel. And having seen this child, God, let me die. And I love that. I love that reality that his whole life was aimed towards what God had promised. He was given this calling, this purpose to, to trust and to believe and to proclaim, I don't think that Simeon had been going to the temple daily or as often as he went and not telling people what he was doing. Right? That, that doesn't fit. It doesn't follow. He, he was a regular fixture in the temple, if I read this aright. He had been led there and, and over and over. He was waiting. He was actively waiting for the coming of Messiah. And as one who was actively waiting and had been told by God that he would not die until he saw it, he was confessing what he knew to be true about what God was going to do in his life and what God was going to do in Israel when this was fulfilled. Simeon was actively waiting for God to keep his word. And I want to stop right here before we go any further. And I want to challenge you with this question. When God promises you something, do you wait passively or do you wait actively? Do you just kind of sit back and go, well, you know, whatever, not over. It'll be what it is or it won't. I don't know. Or, or do you anticipate God keeping his promises? Are you like picking up rocks and looking? God, where is it? I know you, I know you said you were going to give it to us. I know you promised it. Are you searching for what God has been doing? Are you actively expecting God to keep His Word? Because He will. You can live your life anticipating the fulfillment of what God has promised. And Simeon exemplifies that for us. His waiting for the promise of God became his purpose. You say, well, Jesus has already come. Yeah, but do you know He's coming back? I get up every single morning that it's cloudy and I look to the east and I say, is today the day? Because the scripture talks about the clouds being rolled back. So I, in my mind, at least, I think it has to be at least a somewhat cloudy day. Is he coming in the clouds with power? Could it be today? It could be. Am I expecting it to be today? Not as firmly as I should be. You know why? Because I've made plans for tomorrow. <laughs> but I'm not suggesting that we need to go to a mountaintop and stop life. We need to expect what God has promised. And we need to anticipate what God has promised. But until that happens, we need to live our lives. And we need to be faithful to live our lives. And we need to be faithful to live our lives in the context and the scope of the expectant promise that God will keep His word and God will do what He said and He will do it in the fullness of time and when He does it, it will be worth the wait. See, Simeon trusted that God was going to keep His word and the moment of vision for him to, to see Jesus, to hold Him in His arms, was enough reality for him to say all of the weight, 
all of the trial, all of the difficulty, all of the conflict, all of the pain, all of the suffering, all of the delay, all of the, all of it was worth it. Not only did he say, I can die now because I have seen Christ, but he said, I might die in peace. But what does peace attribute to us? Satisfaction? Balance? Uh, an understanding that everything that's gone has been as it should be and it's all right? That the world is exactly as it's supposed to be in this moment? Simeon looked over the course of his entire life, an entire life of waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled unto him. And he said, you know what, God? I can leave this world knowing that the books are balanced. Everything is as it should be. I can leave in peace. I have no regrets. I have no sorrows. I have no sadness about anything that it's cost me to wait. I know that this moment is worth it all. Now here's the thing. If you're living with your eyes on a purpose defined by God, there will be peace in the midst of the wait. Even as you're waiting, there is the confident expectation that what you're waiting for will make the payoff of receiving it worth whatever it costs. Does that make sense? Beloved, this is the ground of sacred purpose. This is the ground of what God calls us to seek. To know that His fulfillment is coming. Now, we can have this kind of confident assertion of God's deliberate fulfillment of His promise because we are no longer held in abeyance by an incomplete priesthood and law that could not take away our sin. You follow the connection here? You see, in the Old Testament days, they could only look upon the temporary cycle of the sacrificial system every year, every month, every day. There was something going on because they could never rest in their acceptance by God because they had to go to the next sacrifice. They had to fulfill the next thing. They had to obey the next commandment. Lord, we can rest in the confident knowledge that God has accepted us in the Beloved. And that gives to the ground of our expectance comfort and safety. It gives to the ground of what we know we are receiving from God an absolute surety that no matter what it looks like on the outside, it's best and it's good. Right? I can offer you two or three really bad options for supper. Stuff you wouldn't put in your mouth willingly if I put a gun to your head. And you can decide for yourself, okay, I'm going to eat that one because it's the best of all these bad options, but there's no way in the world I can convince you it's good. Right? Is that how you view God's will for your life? It's the best of all options, but nothing else is good? Is that what you see? Or do you rest in the ground of saying, God, what you have done is not only best, but it's good. I want it. I desire it. I see it. I love it. Do you rest in the ground of saying, God, I trust that your will and your work is good. Because that's where we should rest. We should know that no matter what else happens and what else is going on, 
We are doing what is right, and God is doing what is best and what is good. And we can stand on that ground, no matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, no matter how it might seem in the moment, if we have a purpose that goes beyond us. This is why Paul said, I have learned to be content in any condition I find myself. I've learned to be content whether I have much or whether I have little, whether I'm imprisoned or whether I'm free, whether I'm well, whether I'm sick, it doesn't matter to me. If I'm naked, if I'm clothed, if I'm cold, if I'm warm, if I'm comfortable, none of it matters. For I am content in the reality that I am doing what God has called me to do. I am fulfilling the purpose in my life. And in fulfilling that purpose, I am satisfied with what my God is giving me. And I know that it is best. More than that, I know it is good. But we have to get beyond just merely shouldering our burdens and saying, okay, I'll trudge through this life until I get to my reward. Because that leaves us pretty hopeless and it leaves us pretty sad and it leaves us pretty depressed and it leaves us leaving a taste in other people's mouths of, I don't want that. That there is an aspect of the head down trudge when things get really hard that is helpful to master. But as an attitude for a lifetime, I wouldn't recommend it. Find joy in whatever it is that God has brought to you. And find hope in what it is that He is calling you unto. Because what, what Simeon got as he was waiting on the Lord was a vision of what God was going to do through Christ that stepped so far beyond the Aaronic priesthood that the two could not even really be compared. Look back at Luke chapter 2 with me. I want to show you a couple of things. Luke chapter 2. And let's just review what Simeon said in his, uh, his declaration about what God had done. <coughs> Pardon me. So Luke chapter 2. He blessed God, verse 28, and he says this, Lord, you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all people. And here we go. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, we're not done here, so we'll leave your Bibles open there. We're going to look at some other stuff. But first of all, understand that every single person who lived in Old Testament Israel understood that God's working with Israel was for Israel, excluding everybody else. And they liked it that way. So much so that they referred to us, the Gentiles of the world, as dogs. And the Jews didn't have a happy view of the dogs. They were Middle Eastern people, right? Middle Easterners don't like dogs. They don't keep them as pets. We have a strange relationship with dogs here in this country. Um, in other parts of the world, they think we're stupid for how we feel about our dogs. They, they viewed anybody who wasn't Jewish as despised, as rejected, as unclean. 
Now some of this was by the command of God. God had told them to stay separate from the rest of the world for the sake of what He was preparing in them. But it was never intended to be the end-all position of God or His Word or His work towards the rest of the world. God had always said, all the way back in His initial promise to Abraham, that He would bless all nations through Abraham. That He was going to establish for all of Abraham's descent, everybody according to the promise, the reality that He was going to bless them whether they were of the physical descent of Abraham or merely the spiritual descent of Abraham. So Simeon had a vision for what God was doing that far surpassed the old priesthood. He had a vision for what was coming that was beyond anything that the old priesthood could have established. He understood that what was coming was for everybody. It was a light for the revelation of truth to the Gentiles who were trapped in the bondage of their pagan worship. Okay? So I want you to understand this in the context of how we live today. The message of the gospel is a light for the deliverance of those who are bound in darkness. How do you dispel the darkness when you go into a darkened room? Well, in this day and age, we flip a switch, right? If you lived in another day and age, you might light a candle. You might light an oil lamp. You might throw open the blinds. What's the, what's the single factor that goes through all of those things? How do you dispel darkness? Light, right? You dispel darkness with light. You don't banish the darkness. You don't walk into a room and go, darkness be gone. You might, <laughs> but make sure you've got the light switch in your hand. It's more dramatic if the lights come on. You walk into a room and you bring light in, and the light, by its nature, banishes the darkness. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the light that banishes the darkness of the world around us. Is what I was talking about earlier, about reframing the conversation. What do these kids need? Do they need somebody to argue gender politics with them? No. They need the gospel. They need to know that Jesus died for their sin, and they need to know that the way that they see the world is sin, but there is hope for what has been done. They need the gospel. And it's the same thing that every person you meet who is outside of Christ needs. They need the gospel. It is the gospel that is the light which will banish the darkness of all pagan idolatries around which we are moving. And do not for one minute think that just because they call their pagan idolatry science, that it's not a pagan idolatry. Anything that replaces God is paganism. Period. <clears throat> call it what you will. Call it science. Call it Satanism, call it Catholicism, call it whatever. If it does not honor God as He is revealed in the Scripture, it is paganism, and the Gospel is the light that will drive it from existence. We allow the culture and the world 
to frame the conversation around the peripherals. In effect, walking into a darkened room and saying, darkness be gone, here's the power of my intellect. Instead, we need to walk into a room and bring light. We must bring the gospel. Simeon understood that when Christ came, it was a light for everybody. And it was a display of the glory of what God had done in Israel. It was a display of the fullness of God's perfection and God's will and God's purpose and God's glory. What had God been doing since he first promised Abraham, I'm going to deliver a people out of you? What had God been doing since he first told Eve, your seed will go to war against his seed and will crush his head? What had been going on? God had been delivering and preparing a people so that Christ would come to pay for sin and remove the barrier that existed between us and God and display to the powers and principalities in the heavenly places the perfection of God's will and God's purpose in everything that was going on. And that purpose was displayed in the glory of Israel. It was the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel is not King David. The glory of Israel is not Solomon. The glory of Israel is not a tree planted in a land that is not the Israel of the Bible. It is not a new temple. It is not a red heifer. It is not any of the things that people want to reframe to be the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel is Jesus Christ. He is the glory of Israel. And He is the glory of Israel because He is the embodiment of and the focus and the point and the entirety of what God has been doing since before he ever initially said, let there be light. It's all been about Jesus. Everything comes down to Jesus. He is the focus. He is the purpose. He is the end and the beginning of all of it. And, and Simeon understood also that Jesus Christ in his coming was going to disrupt everything that Israel believed about itself because Israel had gotten this so terribly, terribly wrong. Now, they don't have the exclusion on, on having everything disrupted because when you bring the gospel to bear in the heart of a pagan, you're going to mess up their world. I promise. You're going to disrupt everything they believe, everything they hold precious, and if they are not immediately saved by God's mercy, they're going to be really unhappy with you for a while. They might even hate you. Don't let that stop you. Because the gospel is what is needed. Okay? But Simeon understood that this was going to be a problem in all of Israel. Look at this. Verse 34, Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary, and he said, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. He's, he's going to bring peace and contentment to everybody, because the message he's bringing is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God wants you to live your best life now. Is that the message that Jesus brought? No, he brought a message that was very simple. Repent of your sin or be condemned for it. 
will bear the condemnation of your sin in my flesh and I will die for your sin and I will make a way for you to come to God but you must come through me. There is no other option. And that message is still offensive because people want to believe that they are able to do something for their own good. People want to believe that they are able to accomplish something that will satisfy God. Their purpose is contrary to truth. Our purpose is the declaration of the gospel of Christ. But look at what he goes on to say. Verse 35. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. But the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now, if you're talking to somebody who is involved in Mariadology, they're going to tell you that that verse means that Mary at the cross suffered some sort of angst and, and, and harm that allows her to become co-redemptrix with Christ. They have elevated Mary to the position of co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix, and they base it upon this verse. Do you know that's not what Simeon is saying? What Simeon is saying is, look, he's going to cause the rising and the falling of many in Israel. They're going to have to confront this Christ who is not what they expected him to be. And Mary, you of all people ought to know who he is, but it's going to trip you up too. That sword of God's truth is going to slice through your pretensions. You say, well, where does the scripture talk about that? Well, you can look in the Gospels and you can see that there was a point where Mary and her other children came to collect Jesus because they thought he was off his rocker. What does this tell us? It tells us that no matter who you are, there is exactly one way to find peace with God. And it is to be confronted by the Savior and the reality of your own sin. And nobody, not Mary, not Joseph, not the Pope, not you, not me, not anybody, can get into heaven apart from the blood of Christ being applied to them, apart from God calling the dead to life, and apart from the redemption that is purchased in Christ Jesus. Beloved, it is the only way. And if we believe that this is true, then this becomes a purpose that defines everything. Because God reveals through Christ the heart of man. And God reveals through His people the truth about Christ that He might reveal the hearts of men as He speaks to them. Now this is mercy beyond all comprehension. Because God could have done it without us. And He could have left us to wander in our emptiness and wander in our pointless pursuits and allow us to fill up our lives with empty fluff that will vanish when we die. You want to know what that would look like? The Scripture does tell us. Look at me in 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 3. Starting in verse 11. No other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, that's the day of judgment, will declare 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built upon it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So this is what it looks like when we allow man-centered purpose to define our lives. How does Paul put it? He says, look, if you build your entire life on things that perish with the using, they're going to be tested by fire in the day of the Lord. And when they're tested by fire in the day of the Lord, what happens when you put a match to dry grass? All the farmers in the yard said, Woo! Because it goes, Whoom! there's going to be people walking around heaven smelling of smoke because everything they thought they were sending ahead got burned up. If you build your life on the things of this world, there's nothing left when it's tried on the day of Christ. Look, purpose matters. And Christ in His coming gives us a purpose that goes beyond us. It gives us a purpose that is focused. It's real. It's powerful and it's intentional. Anna had lived her life waiting for this moment also. We don't have anything about what Anna said. She, she prophesied, she praised... There's just a little snippet about Anna, but I want—I just want to point out for you really quickly something interesting. The scripture tells us that she had lived seven years from her virginity with a husband. If you take an average set of what we think we know about that time, that would mean she was about between 20 and 22 when her husband died. She would have been married somewhere between 13 and 15. She had no children that we know of. For she was a widow who was on the books, if you will. She had children. Those children would have been required to care for her. So we have a fairly good idea that Anna was a widow without children. As a young widow, she not only could have, but was expected to remarry. But she chose not to. And instead devoted her life to the service of the temple. She devoted her life to God, awaiting what God was doing. And the scripture tells us that she was a widow of about 85 years. Now you can read this a couple of different ways. But I read it to be that her widowhood had lasted 85 years. So if she was 21 when her husband died, she's 106 years old, which lines up with a woman of great age. And she had given 85 years of her life to serving God and waiting without expecting anything in return, without laying hold of the things that she was justly entitled to from this world. And we do not sense from this passage any hint of bitterness or upsetness about what she had not taken and what she had received instead. Beloved, so many times the thing that keeps us from following the purposes that God has set us to 
is some sort of misunderstanding about, I'm going to get shortchanged here. If I pursue God's work and I pursue God's ways, I'm not going to have what I want. I'm not going to get to live my life. I'm not going to get to do the things that I want to do. And I'm going to be shortchanged. And this is a really common thing that we hear and we, and we, we, we not only hear from people, but we articulate in conscious and unconscious ways. And a great deal of it comes from the fact that we're focusing on the wrong things. Somebody who has a right perspective about what God is calling them to do, who engages in it, whatever it might be, whatever shape it is that God has called you to serve the kingdom, if you understand what it is that you're doing, there is nothing in the world that could convince you to stop serving God to chase after something that will vanish in the using. But if you don't have that right in your head, if you allow the world to reframe your argument and reframe your understanding and reframe your priorities so that what you want is what the world offers, then yeah, you're going to feel cheated all your days. Anna shows us that this is possible. And that when it is possible, God honors it. Do you know how many other women were in the temple serving? I don't. I have no idea. You know why? Because they didn't do it like she did. God honored her. There might have been a hundred others. There might have been no others. I don't know. But the point is that she did it and she was honored by God for honoring Him. And that's always true. God honors those who honor Him. And he honors those who honors him with their purpose. And we can know this because his purpose has been entrusted to us. This is a focused reality. Purpose is always about aim and focus. Right? If you understand what your purpose is, and it's, and it's literally in your head as your purpose, nothing will distract you from your purpose. You know what you're about. Because your purpose is your meaning. It's where you derive every bit of self-identity. It's where you derive every bit of power. It's where you derive everything that makes you who you are. This is my purpose. You can read it in all capital letters. This is my meaning for existence. You say, well, that's a lot to take in, preacher. I'm not sure if I have one of those. Okay, look at Philippians chapter 4. We read some of it earlier, but let's read the whole context here. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you feel like you're being shortchanged in pursuing God, hear the word of the Lord. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. 
the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Or you could look at Isaiah chapter 23, verse 6, where it says that you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. This is not an ambiguous promise. When, when we allow our vision of purpose to, to sway away from God and away from the things of God, it leaves us unstable. It leaves us unsettled. It leaves us discontented. And it leaves us worried. Because we are designed to hit what we aim at. God has designed us physically. What you look at is what you hit. Unless there's some sort of physical discrepancy. You know why people don't, don't hit what they aim at? Because they don't practice looking. You want to be sure to hit your thumb with a hammer, I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Be worried that you're going to hit your thumb with a hammer and look at your thumb. And you'll hit it every time. However, if you want to not hit your thumb and instead hit the nail, where do you think you want to look? At the nail. And the first time you put on bifocal glasses and you're used to how your eyes are supposed to work, you're going to have a hard time looking at the nail, but you'll get there, I promise. <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> it, it'll, it'll work out, I promise. <laughs> Try walking on a wall eight feet off the ground with your bifocals on the first day. I threw them out. I'm like, I'm not going to wear these. I'm going to die today if I try to do that. Here's the thing. We are designed by God to inherently aim for and target what we look at. It's the way He made us, that connection between hand and eye. And then spiritually, it's that connection between our, our vision for what God tells us to do and the purpose of our lives. So what is Paul telling us here in Philippians chapter 4? You're not sure how to find your purpose. You're not sure how to focus on it. You're not sure how to do this. He tells you, discipline your mind to think of the things that matter. Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is lovely, whatever thing is of good report, think on these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Instead of filling up your mind with the clutter of everything else that's going on, fill up your mind with the things of God and focus on that. And I promise you this, if you find yourself lacking in peace, it's because your mind is not stayed on Him. And that's not to condemn you. That is to inform you and to educate you so that you can have that check, right? This is something God really pressed on me this week as I was praying through this message and working on it and getting it around. It's this idea that every single time I find myself out of peace, and it's, it's often I'm confessing my sin to you, I need to step back from that circumstance and that situation, and I need to say to myself, Lord, help me fix my gaze on you. So that I might find the peace that you promised. Because where there's a problem with my peace, it's not with God keeping His Word. It's with me allowing something besides my purpose to be my purpose. And it's with me not having my gaze fixed on my God so that my peace is disrupted because I'm not concentrating, I'm not fixing and settling my heart on Him. This is purpose. 
This is what God has created us for. And ultimately, why this focused purpose matters most is that it brings us into the river of an eternal purpose. Remember I started off saying that any purpose that's only about you will fail? Do you know that's true if your only purpose, even if you're looking towards Christ, but it's only about what I can get? Who's really at the center of that? Is it not still you? Right? That's why it's important for us to frame the answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It is to have our hearts and our minds focused on God so much so that nothing else really matters. Because this is an eternal purpose of God. Look, God has been doing a work since the beginning of time. Since before the beginning of time. God has been establishing and been fulfilling His own purpose. Look at me in Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1. And listen to the word of the Lord about the purpose of God. Starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So what is it that God is doing in saving a people? He is glorifying the Son. He is glorifying Himself. He is bringing to light the majesty and the fullness of everything that God is. And as God doesn't work in your life, His focus is to display Himself in you. His purpose is to display Himself through you. And that's not just to the world around you, but according to Ephesians chapter 3, which we read often, it is to display you to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. To vindicate Himself. Which means... Pardon me. Which means that even if you are in a life whereby you have very little impact or contact with the rest of the world, God is still gaining great glory as you are displaying Christ in your own life and in your own character. Because God is displaying Christ in you to the powers and the principalities in the heavenly places. 
And it is more about God's purpose than your purpose. Your purpose matters because when you aim at Christ, God brings your purpose into the river of His purpose. This is an eternal purpose. This is a purpose that extends so far beyond us that we hardly even matter. But since we're us and I'm talking to us, we need to recognize that God graciously includes us in it. Beloved, this is majesty. And everything about your purpose brings you into an awareness whereby you might know the truth about who God is. As God brings you into alignment with His will in your life, you learn the grace of God. You learn the justice of God. You learn the righteousness of God. You learn all of these beautiful and precious and glorious truths about who Christ is. And so often when we hear and think about framing our lives according to the purpose of God and the power of the gospel, we think that means go forth and proclaim and preach. And if you're not a missionary, you're not nothing. And I've heard that sermon. I grew up in Baptist churches. I have heard that sermon all my life. <coughs> but it's not truth. Missionaries matter. They're precious. And if you're called to the field, go do it. And, and it's our job as the church to hold the rope. You either go into the well or you hold the rope. I, I know that's true. But you need to understand that whatever it is that God is calling you to, it matters. And it matters because the display of Christ in you is far more important than anything God is going to do through you. Because it is God's purpose that actually matters and gives value to ours. No matter what you face, no matter what you think you're looking at for a purpose in your life, if it is apart from God, it's empty. If it is not Him who is your reason, then what your reason is, is off. But when God becomes your reason, then everything else in your life becomes grist for the mill of the display of His glory. Whether it's baking bread or fixing cars or raising children or teaching children or driving a bus or writing books or, or, or sitting in a chair contemplating His glory for a while. When your purpose is Christ, then all of it comes to bear but when your purpose is you, it's all out of kilter. And so often we'll hear well-meaning people tell us, you have to go live your life and you have to do what makes you happy. And while that's true in God has fashioned you for something, it's not true as a purpose. It's not true as a meaning. It's not true as something to give value to your life. What is true is that God will take whatever it is that He has called you to do and He will make it matter far more than you could possibly comprehend. Because in what you do for the sake of the kingdom of God, and that is whatever shape God has made you, it's not a missionary or nothing, it's not a preacher or nothing, it's not a teacher or nothing, it is whatever shape God has made you. 
in whatever you do for the kingdom of God, it is an opportunity for great glory for Christ, not only through you, but more importantly, in you. And he is fashioning glory in you. It is a beautiful and precious thing to live your life with a purpose that goes beyond you. And this is something that could only be given to us in because until the coming of Christ, every aspect of our lives was constrained by a law that we could not keep. And a God that we could not appease. <coughs> when Christ came, God Himself appeased His wrath through His Son and gave us access to Him by His blood. <coughs> the law has been laid aside satisfied in Christ. And we are free. There's something worth living for. There's something worth aiming for. And no matter what you hear, find the world saying, measure it against Christ and ask yourself which one's worth. God, I ask that you give to us grace in this day. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to honor you and to love you and to live our lives with our eyes fixed steadfastly on you. And God, help us understand that in your coming, you give to us a purpose. And in that purpose, you give us meaning. God, we thank you that Jesus provided all of that for us. And we thank you that it's been given to us free charge given to us by your grace. Lord, let us learn the majesty of who you are through the fullness of all that you know. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.